This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Our hot question of the day today has to do with dog friendliness. As we've been hearing, Vancouver has placed sixth on a list of North American cities rated for dog friendliness. We were actually the only Canadian city to even make the top 10 at all. Where we lost points, though, was the difficulty in finding rental properties that allow dogs or any restaurants where dogs are allowed inside. So other than those things, they said, you know, it's pretty good for dogs here. We have dog parks, dog beaches, uh, you know, dog trails trails, off-leash trails, all that kind of stuff. But they said the difficulty in those dog-friendly rental properties or dog-friendly restaurants is what made us lose points. So we are asking you today, for our hot question of the day, we want to know, should restaurants in Vancouver be allowed to host dogs? And that is if they want to. Obviously, not every restaurant would want to do this. But let's say they have a great patio space and they would like to be able to allow somebody to bring their, as Gordon McDonald puts it, well-behaved dog to just lie under the table while they're having a drink or enjoying a meal. Should restaurants be allowed to say, yeah, we would be okay with that? What do you think? Now, you can vote. You can go online to SimiSarah980 to cast your vote on this. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Or how about this? Why don't you use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. I know that for a lot of people, like I had emails from people saying, yeah, I like dogs and everything, but no, the restaurant is one step too far. I always find that so interesting. Like if you say it's outside and, you know, they're just going to be sitting on the patio, they're not going to come inside the restaurant. Is that still okay? Or is that still a no-no for people out there? Should restaurants be allowed to host dogs? That is our hot question of the day today. Yes, dogs are great. No, keep them away. Those are the choices that we have. You can uh, cast your vote on this. Uh, For sure, email me, simi at cknw.com. Now, number one, the number one city on the list was Portland, Oregon. Anybody from around here who's been to Portland, especially if you've been with your dog, will know that is a very well-deserved title. We actually vacationed for a couple of days uh, last year, year before, uh, down in Portland, took our dog with us, and it was amazing. The hotel like rolled out the welcome mat for the dog, like special treats for the dog. Everywhere you walked, there was like a water bowl. You were welcome in so many different places. It was just really remarkable. I thought, this is unbelievable. You could walk through the mall with the dog. There was no issue at all. So given that, I can see why they're number one and we are number six. There's a big difference there. So could we be dog friendlier and how should we be dog friendlier? Oh, how much do I love this topic? Because I know people are going to get really fired up about it. In fact, as soon as I saw this this morning, I thought, we have got to talk about this on the show today. It has to do with being dog friendly. City of Vancouver recognized for being one of the most dog friendly cities in North America. We actually ranked sixth on the list, the only Canadian city to even make the top 10. The, the company that did this is Technobark. They review the latest dog innovative products and technology, and they listed us as number six on their list. So we're going to talk more about this. What made us lose points? How could we do better? Claire Allen, of course, Claire Allen's here to talk to us about this, our contributor to the show, and honestly, the most pro-dog person I've ever met in my entire life. Yes, I love dogs. I know you do. I know. I Sometimes just... I think you love dogs more than people, Claire. Uh, I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that is a completely fair statement. And so I was thrilled to see that Vancouver was recognized for being dog friendly. Although I was concerned about the fact that we were not, that we have some work to do at least. I was concerned about Tampa, Florida being ahead of us, but... Uh, yeah, they were. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I mean, it was uh, very interesting. And I think there are definitely some things that we can learn from or improve on if we want to be a more friendly dog city. The question is, do we? Do we? Yes. That's the question we're also asking for our hot question of the day today, too. Like, for instance, going to restaurants, this seems to be a big thing because yes. we lost points because can't really go to restaurants with your dog. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that is something I think about. I have two small dogs, and it would be great if I could walk down, say, Main Street, which I live close to, and have my dog sit on the patio when you go to Don't Argue Pizza or something like that. But we cannot. You could tie your dog up and they could sit on the outside. But, you know, that's not great for everybody, especially if it's a big patio. Hard to find seats that are near the True. outer edge of the patio. So as the bylaw stands, um, it says that operator of food premises must not permit live animals to be on the premises unless it's a guide dog, service dog. Um, but the, that guide dog or service dog can't be in any of the premises where food is prepared, which totally makes sense. However, you're in the clear if you have a uh, live fish in an aquarium. That's fine. <laughs> right. I don't really want to take my live fish in the aquarium. It's to a the whole patio. thing. Bring the aquarium. Sure, okay. yeah. So what, um, what was the criteria then for them choosing how we became number six on the list? So they looked at dog parks, dog beaches, health services for dogs, activities for dogs, dog-friendly restaurants, and the climate. So okay. obviously we scored major points in Canada for climate. Also for like dog-friendly activities such as hiking, because there's a lot of off-leash dog parks or even dog like trails that you can take your dog on. Yes. However, they did have a section for dog beaches in which we scored 88.5, which we beat Portland, which is number one. They had 88.2. So... We have some very nice dog-friendly beaches. We have some beaches. very nice dog-friendly beaches. As a dog owner myself that is walking on the beaches... All year round. Sometimes I find it annoying that the beaches are closed to dogs in the wintertime. Like you can't really take mm. your dog on certain beaches in the wintertime, despite there being no one there. But that being said, we do have lovely dog-only beaches. Yes. So I, maybe I shouldn't be complaining about that. Yeah, we have a couple of uh, dog-only beaches there. My dog loves those beaches, mm -hmm. like goes crazy at those beaches. So it's nice. And I mean, there are dog-only parks. There are dog-off-leash parks. There are really nice. I know the city is trying to improve dog-off-leash parks and makes them so that they're safe for everybody, even if, if you don't have a dog, like making them enclosed and stuff like that. Olympic Village has really nice um, enclosed dog-off-leash parks, section for small dogs section for big dogs, which warms my heart. But uh, yeah, so that was really interesting. Um, in regards to health services, I th one of the areas that they said we could improve on is that we need a few more um, like open all the time vet clinics sort of thing. Like 24-hour vet yeah. clinics. Yeah, there's not very many of those, are there? There's a few, but I mean, you know, there's not a, a ton. Okay, so we could do better for health services for dogs. Yes. Uh, but where we really lost points was... Dog-friendly restaurants. Yeah, I mean, the couple of the cities that were ahead of us, like Portland and uh, Cannon Beach, Portland is for sure known for being having very dog-friendly restaurants. Um, they also have dog-friendly transit. We do not have those. You can take a dog on any form of transit if it is in a uh, little cage or a carry uh, bag that you can carry. Also, of course, guide dog or service dog. Um, but otherwise, you know, if you have a Great Dane and you don't have a car and you need to go somewhere with that dog... You're out of luck. Dog has to stay home. Well, what if you need to go to the vet? 
This right. is a dilemma. I guess this is a dilemma. You got to plan your trip accordingly. Also, mm-hmm. size of dog, I think, matters for people here as well, don't you? It seems like, yes. Uh, to be honest, sometimes I've, I've encountered some Vancouverites, a higher, a higher amount of Vancouverites than I would like that are dog averse. They do not like them. Right. I think they're okay with dogs because I'm, I'm reading emails at the same time I'm talking to you and I'm getting a lot of them from saying, people say, listen, I like dogs, but, mm-hmm. right? I like dogs. Doesn't mean I want to have dogs with me everywhere I go. Right. I think that, you know, a lot of um, newer buildings are obviously allowing dogs like new developments and stuff like that. So I think maybe it's just a matter of time before we see our bylaws change in regards to patios or restaurants having dogs. But um, I guess patios would be where it would start, obviously. Um, but right now, I know it's a major complaint for a lot of dog owners because they don't want to tie their dogs up outside to go maybe yeah. get a coffee or something like that. Because, you know, we have heard a lot of stories about dog snatchers. Yeah, recently, as a matter of exactly. fact. So we're really talking about dog, like a patio-friendly Right for dogs, not necessarily like taking your dog into the restaurants. No, down. not like Lady in the Tramp style. They're eating spaghetti no, next no, to you. No, we're not talking about that. <laughs> we're talking about really should restaurants in Vancouver be allowed to decide if their patio can host dogs, and should they not be fined or shut down? Right. Yeah. So yeah. they can make that call. We should. Are we asking people like should they not be allowed to make that call for themselves? Totally. I would support it. I'd be curious to see what our listeners say. Well, we know you're going to support it, but let's see what the (laughs) listeners say. We're going to open up our phone lines here, 604-280-9898. We lost points on this survey because we don't have enough dog-friendly restaurants. So do you think, should restaurants in the city be allowed to decide for themselves if they would like to host dogs. You know, BC has been waiting for some time for some help in dealing with money laundering. And yesterday with the federal budget, there was some hope that we had heard there would be some measures in there. And there were. What they proposed is a federal money laundering task force for this year to try to crack down on that corrupt money that is flowing through real estate trades, casinos, particularly in those hot zones like right here in Metro Vancouver and in Toronto. So it's $200 million over the next five years. And some of that will be used to create the Anti-Money Laundering Action and Coordination Team, as always, has a great acronym. It's ACE. Uh, That aims to bring together agencies, including the RCMP and FinTrack and others, to better share information. So that all sounds good, right? But will it actually work, or is it just for show? Is it practical? That's what we're going to talk about now with the help of Gary Clement, who's the president and CEO of the Clement Advisory Group, the former national director of the RCMP's Money Laundering Program. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Sammy. Uh, it's a real pleasure. What did you think when you heard about these anti-money laundering measures? Like, do you think these are going to work? Well, first of all, I, you know, when you look at it on the surface, um, at least it shows that somebody's going to do something. The, the, the questions I would have and the concerns I still have, we know that when the RCMP had the integrated proceeds of crime programs in the late 80s throughout the 90s, the biggest dilemma that they faced and, and the biggest problem that we, we dealt with when I was still in the force at that time was the fact that we weren't maintaining or keeping people with the required expertise in the units. And that's mainly because policing being paramilitary results in promotions, and most of those promotions occurred outside of, of that expert area of expertise. That has to be addressed very much like you would look at with an FBI agency where people stay in their area of expertise. And that is really something, if they're going to be serious about this, 
is an absolute requirement. The second concern I would have, I didn't notice any talk about integrated policing beyond FinTrack, beyond um, um, taxation. But if you go back to the concept of the former integrated units, it also allowed for municipal or provincial forces to uh, have resources put into these units and also have those uh, individuals paid for under the, the umbrella of this, of this government initiative. Um, in order to get expertise in, a, in a, a fashion that's going to make a difference, the RCMP is going to have to look at that or look at contracting outside the individuals that are, are experts in the field because it takes about five years to build up an expertise to really do an effective job. And I think right now the biggest dilemma is the lack of expertise. Yeah, you mentioned some of the former units, the way they used to do this. Did that older approach, did that work? It worked with the exception that the RCMP could not get around the fact that uh, uh, their promotional system constantly resulted in a, a ongoing training mode for these units because people generally that went in them are some of the uh, all-stars of investigators, and as a result, they were highly promotable. So they got promoted into units outside of that area of expertise. And I argued that we need to drop the rank and go to, go to skill-based pay because in that way you operate very much like you would in the private sector. Don't invest uh, 25000 30000 into training to get somebody up to skill and then allow them to move off into another area. It would be like having a, a medical physician go off into dentistry. It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. So if you lose, were those people ever replaced then? If you had people with great skill, they're moving off, you would think that you'd replace them. Well, you replace them, but unfortunately, you replace them with a lesser set of skills requiring you to, again, train them up to a standard. And that's where the revolving door syndrome that often happens in uh, police specializations has to stop. And we have to look at policing in the 21st century and not the way it was done in, in a paramilitary-style organization. What has prevented us, Gary, in your opinion, from really tackling this in the last few years? Like, clearly it's been running amok, particularly here in BC. What stops, you know, law enforcement from going, hey, we've got a problem, we've got to, we've got to do something about that? Well, I almost hate to say it, but I've argued this now for probably about the last decade. And, and you know, the RCMP tries to be all things to all people. Um, their municipal con- or their uh, uniform contracts, people have to understand, they are contracts. They're really outside of the real mandate of the RCMP. And as a result, they have to service those contracts. That does not make them then be a, a leader in federal policing, what you would see with an FBI agency or the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States, where that's their sole mandate. So oftentimes, federal policing gets left behind. And I, you know, I, I think that's been a bit of a dilemma for the RCMP, trying to bring all things to all people. And unfortunately, the federal side is often sacrificed. So do you think that it almost needs to be like split into two? Well, Either split into two, I, I know going with, back a few years ago when I, I actually put in for the commissioner's job, I wrote that if I uh, was involved, I would either do away with contracts over a period of time or put a Chinese firewall between contract policing and federal policing so that uh, federal policing uh, maintained it, its level of expertise. And it's the only way it's going to work. Right. So you think in the meantime that they don't, there's not enough attention that is paid to something that is a federal issue. 
Correct. There is not. And there hasn't been for a number of years, not for lack of trying, but for lack of resources, lack of budgets and lack of expertise. And and I, I don't want to take anything away from the good work of the officers out there because there's some highly qualified, but through no fault of their own, a lot of their skills have been um, lessened just because of the way they've staffed uh, over the last few years. So then how, I guess what a lot of us wonder when we, we've been talking about these stories, Gary, is that how could something like this go unnoticed? Like at FinTrack or other places or even the Canada Revenue Agency or the RCMP, like does these egregious things that we see happening, do they go unnoticed or is there just nobody who can do anything about it? No, I think to be in, in fairness, I think they've, they I have been noted. I mean, the former Commissioner Paulson uh, raised it with the uh, parliamentarians about the fact that because of the uh, having to look strictly at a lot of the terrorist issues, uh, organized crime investment suffering immensely. And that's been going on since uh, 9-11. Um, and nothing was done about it. Um, that's why, you know, I look at this and I, you know, as I said, it's a, at least they're finally recognizing that something has to be done. But I think we have to, you know, think outside the box become very proactive at it and say, okay, how do we get started tomorrow? What is a utopia to have a, uh, you know, a, 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 or a experienced uh, investigative team made up of both private and public sector that can go out and be effective and efficient. And that's, that's the only way this is going to work in the short term. So is this then a good first step potentially? Well, the money's there. I guess now it's up to how manage uh, how management will uh, staff these positions and whether there's a commitment on the part of RCMP management not to allow these people to be constantly rotating out of these specialized units. If that continues, then I can tell you we're never going to be effective. Gary, thank you very much for your take on this. Thank you very much and have a great day. You too. That's Gary Clement. He's the president and CEO of the Clement Advisory Group. He was the former national director of the RCMP's money laundering program, so he knows of what he speaks. Housing affordability, two words that we talk a lot about here in BC because it is so unaffordable for so many people to live here, for so many people to be able to try to get onto that property ladder. So with the federal government tabling their budget yesterday, there were a lot of eyes on whether or not they would do something about affordability. So what they did was they announced a program that would help first-time homebuyers by picking up a portion of their mortgage costs and also increasing the amount of money that people can borrow from their RRSPs for a down payment. So the money would go to first-time homebuyers that are applying for an insured mortgage. So borrowers would still have to pony up the down payment of at least 5% of the home purchase price. On top of that, though, they would receive an incentive of up to 10% of the house price, which would lower the amount of their mortgage. Is this going to work or is this too complicated for people to take up to try to get into the the housing market at all? So let's get a a little chat about this now going with Professor Andy Yan, who's the director of Simon Fraser University's City Program. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Is this going to work? What do you think? Well, I'm not ready yet to declare housing affordability in our time, but I think that it's also important to know that that it's in the details that I think bring in some uh, some some questions, particularly for a market like metropolitan Vancouver. You got to remember that entire plan is actually based upon availability for housing under four hundred eighty thousand dollars. Where is there housing under four hundred eighty four thousand dollars? 
It's a good question. I think that it's it's a good question towards uh, what kind of uh, where where it is and what it is. Um, I mean, one can certainly find a you know a, a a studio apartment somewhere, maybe even in the city of Vancouver for for four hundred eighty thousand dollars. But then, of course, I think if the attempt is to house um, millennials, one has to understand that millennials are now aging; that they are now entering the kind of prime um, household formation ages, where you're, you're you now have a significant other. And and maybe yeah. even a child or two. And I think for $480,000, uh, the options are actually incredibly limited in certainly Vancouver and limited even in metropolitan Vancouver. So it, I think that... Hmm? I was going to say, is the program itself, though, like the way it's set up, it seems a little complicated to me. It's a, it's a little bit complicated, but then I think what, they, what the biggest challenge is trying to deal with, with housing markets that are as diverse as you find in Canada that, I mean, there's certainly everything that's happening in Metropolitan Vancouver and in Toronto, but then there's everything in between. And I think that this is a policy that perhaps better works in a, let's say, (laughs) there's such a thing, a normal market like uh, Winnipeg or maybe even Calgary or Edmonton or Saskatoon before it would really, really work in a place like uh, Metropolitan Vancouver. Right. Okay. But we're not a, like if, we're, if it's these measures were for these markets that are having trouble like Vancouver mm. and Toronto and we're not normal mm-hmm. markets. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. And I think that that's, it, it, it's, it's interesting to actually then kind of go deeper in towards the other, uh, the another, the other initiatives that, uh, that they're looking at, uh, whether it's the rental, rental, rental construction financing initiative and, and, and also the housing supply challenge. But I think for both of them, they're going like, I, I mean, these are kind of key tent poles. In the in the budget, but you're in this kind of remarkable land market in metropolitan Vancouver, which makes any of these initiatives actually pretty tough. Yeah, it does. So, do you see a lot of take up happening of something like this? Well, I think you'll probably see some take up. I, I think there are other analysts who have said that there will likely be take up. But what I'm concerned about is that when we talk about you know the qualifications to participate in this program at $480,000 that you're really only you're really talking about the others the outer suburbs of metropolitan Vancouver if you will uh Langley um Langley just just really um just away from the core employment centers right and i think that you know that actually brings in a new a new problem what? the issue of transportation uh, that yes, you are able to find that unit that may or that may hopefully be appropriate for your family. But now you've actually now introduced a new a new variable in in the calculation, and it's transportation costs. Okay, that's so interesting. So you're saying that if people do take this program up and they look for prices that are in that price range, they're going to have to move farther out, and mm-hmm. that means that we have to make people move around better. Indeed, indeed, you're, you're, you, you've now added in a whole entire new new cost, whether it's the maintenance of a car, but then also the kind of opportunity cost of just commuting. Right. Is there like that infrastructure has been a, a word that you know the Liberal government loves to throw around? There is there potentially more coming? Do you think on that front this fall? Well, I think that's going to be the interesting kind of question is when we talk about infrastructure, I think that um, certainly the discussion of public transit and really the kind of investments in public transit that I think are that are going to need to be done, I think, throughout the country. And I think that that's something to watch in terms of further uh, further infrastructure investments. But um, I think that, you know, when it comes to housing, uh, without that type of infrastructure investment, this, this particular housing um, strategy actually is prone to have some pretty serious shortcomings. 
Yeah, this I heard a lot of comparisons yesterday, uh, Andy, that people saying this is very similar to that BC Liberal government program that we used to have here in BC a couple of years ago. I, I think that that's that's certainly yeah, there are some parallels. I think that um, where where it's who it's trying to support and really what it's trying to do, I think you know um, may, may actually have some unintended consequences. Interesting. Okay, so then what are you going to be watching for? Like, if there's a lot of take up on this, what do you think the impact could be here? Well, I think that it's. I mean, within the take up again, it's the limitations of that take up because it's not only a um, looking for a only dealing with uh, homes that are uh, that are under four hundred eighty thousand dollars, but households that earn less than one hundred twenty thousand. So I think that that's going to be an interesting kind of question when it comes to the kinds of uh, uptake that that's going to involve. But then I think throughout that uptake, um, you've now introduced that new uh, transportation cost variable. And I think that that's going to be, I think, one that's going to hem in the, uh, the, the issue of the effectiveness that this particular program is going to have. Um, that being said, I think that the thing to watch will probably be along the rental environment and seeing really what's going to happen in terms of the rental construction financial initiative and really how many new units of rental housing that might be able to generate. But of course, not, not, it's not only the number of units that it's going to generate, but what kind and at what kind of rents. Right. Oh, more for us to talk about then. Andy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. You are very welcome. Take care. You too. That is Professor Andy Yan, Director of Simon Fraser University's City Program. You know, elections are such interesting animals. I mean, they could be unpredictable, as we know here in BC. And you just never know what's going to grab the public's attention. Sometimes the most cynical political move or the most unrealistic political promise is that thing that grabs someone's vote. How does that happen? Why do we fall for it? Why do we make these irrational political decisions? Well, that is the topic of David Moskrop's new book, actually. He's a political scientist at the University of Ottawa. The book is called Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. And David joins us now. It's a great title, by the way. Yeah, thank you. And there's a question mark. There there, is. That's why I had to put it on there. uh, That question mark is doing a lot of important work. Are we too dumb for democracy? No. The good news is no. Okay. And the bad news, though, is that we're, we're certainly encouraged to be, uh, in part by our own psychology, but, but largely thanks to the world around us, the environment in which we live. And we live up to that encouragement fairly routinely. So what made you decide that, okay, this I've got to dive into this topic? What brought you to this? It, it was my doctoral dissertation work at UBC. And, uh, you know, I originally came across this stuff in 2006, 2007, And we're thinking, okay, we have this idea of ourselves, rational, dispassionate, calculative machines, you know, just robots sitting down, taking in information, putting out decisions. We are so not those people. We are not those people. And and yet that myth persists. So, you know, the more I read about this, I thought, okay, weird. You know, how does it apply to politics? What does that mean for democracy? Uh, What does that mean for the long-term viability of self-government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And, and, And we find ourselves here today. Okay, so let's talk about some of the items in the book. It was interesting the way you laid out how, when we, really, democracy as we know it is a really young thing. It's like 300 years, so have we just not quite got the hang of it yet, perhaps? Well, yeah. So, you know, in, in one of the chapters of the book, I talk about how, you know, the, the history of democracy is largely the, the history of the rise and fall of democracy. And the idea of liberal democracy, so universal, inc- deeply inclusive, based on, on robust human rights, um, is very, very new. And not only are we sort of not 
you know, fully getting the hang of it, um, it's already starting to show some pretty serious signs of wear and tear. Uh, and, and, you know, we have this sense that maybe, well, it's like an achievement that we've unlocked. So it's not going anywhere, but we could lose it all. So how? What's happening? Well, I mean, in part, you know, I, I think there are frustrations when people don't get their way. There's a sense that the system is rigged. There's uh, inequality in some cases, um, which uh, significant inequality that, that alienates people. Uh, folks look at the system and say, you know, well, elites don't want me to run things. Is, is, is it really a democracy when, when you know, an elite class and a bunch of experts are making decisions all the time? That starts to build up. And when things go pear-shaped, now in good times, you can manage that. In bad times, say economic downturns or say the worst of climate change starts to hit, then you're in big trouble because people lose faith in the system. Right. But then if it's a democracy, then the person who wins may not be the person that you voted for. But we all that seems to make people think that the system's against them if the person that they voted for didn't win. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things, uh, you know, when I look at a democracy, the first thing I look for is the first thing anyone looks for free, fair, regular elections. Without that, you're in trouble. But there's other things, too. Uh, Can citizens routinely participate in self-government in some ways? We're actually pretty bad at that. We're really good at elections, but we're bad at that. Um, you know, are policies broadly representative? Whether or not you get the, whether or not you cast a, a winning ballot or not, in the long run, do you get the sorts of policies that you want? Yes or no? In Canada, the data is a little bit mixed. It's not entirely clear. There's not a ton of information. In the U.S., we know that that's not true. The U.S. is functioning an oligarchy. Uh, and that's extremely dangerous because it's not just that you don't get the candidate you want. If you don't get the policies you want, then you start to say, well, what's the point in all this? Is that that idea of politicians? We think politicians govern for the greater good. We always say that we always hear that. Oh well, you're not let you're elected to run for everybody. You're supposed to represent everybody, but do they? No, I mean, but they can't. You know, I, I've never I've met a lot of politicians. Uh, some of them are pretty good. Some of them are pretty bad. Um, <laughs> oh, some some are do you great. Name names? Do you want to name names? I would be very happy to. As soon as the book tour is over, I'll come back and just give you a list. Sure. Um, you know, but I've. It's not like they're in it for to destroy their country or their province. They care, and they think they have a vision that is is appropriate and, and is right and is good and is just. So they don't wake up in the morning and say, "Okay, well, I'm out to destroy things." They believe in this, but there's no way to govern for every, for everyone. So you know, and I talk about this in the book. What we need to adopt then is processes that everyone can agree with, that they feel included in, that they feel are robust and and meaningful, because no one's ever going to get everything they want all the time. Yeah, but can you get anything done if you you can't even agree on a process that we're all going to be happy with? Well, so you... You can do better or worse. So, you know, what I push for is is creating space for, for civic participation in political life. I don't want everyone to become a full-time politician. Nobody wants that. You know, the whole point of democracy is that you don't have to do that. We have right. other people to do that. Um, but what I do want is more civic participation in public life because most people can agree that when you give ordinary folks a chance to come together and make political decisions like in a citizens' assembly like we had here um, about a decade and a half ago right. or participatory budgeting or whatever it might be, People are really good at it. They trust the system. They like it, and they produce great outcomes. So, you know, building a little bit more into that uh, into our democracy would be great. So, having those things not just at the will of or the whim of a politician, but actually built into the system. That's right. Sort of institutionalized uh, routine. Now, that doesn't mean we have to do that for everything. We shouldn't do that for everything. But it would be nice that uh, that was a normal thing that we routinely did. Not only does that help set the agenda, so that we're talking about things that folks want to talk about. 
and it helps make sure that we get a little bit of what we want. It also builds civic capacity. Uh, people learn how to do things when they're right. participating in this. They become sort of heuristics or mental shortcuts for other people to look to and say, oh, yeah, I, these are people like me. You know, They can do it. I can do it. I trust them. I like them. Um, and it builds trust. So there's all kinds of goods built into that. Where does human psychology come into all of this? Because a lot of times people will vote against their own interests because something sounds good or whatever the case is. Like Even when it comes to voting, we're not always good at it. We're weird ducks. We are weird ducks. Yeah. You, you know, uh, there's a lot of data in political psychology that suggests that many people will pick their politicians first and adjust their policies after. So when you look and say, well, how is it that, you know, that person, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. Like the likability uh, thing? Or they'll just go, oh, I like that person? Or they're, they're, they're like me in this way or that way, or my family always voted red, green, blue, orange, whatever it may be. There's lots of ways that we choose our political affiliation. But the scary thing is, not universally, but some few folks will choose their affiliation, adjust their policies. And so when you look in the United States and say, well, how could someone support Trump, even though he's killing jobs and, you know, in steel towns, et cetera, et cetera, um, or, or for that matter, um, you know, how can you think the economy is doing well when it's clearly not, you know, it's just because you're politicians in power, is that people's psychology will warp the world, It'd be almost like a lens that warps the world to make it all make sense to them because they want to hold on to that affiliation. And they want to they justify that vote. They want to justify, I voted for this person, they won, therefore I was right, everybody else was wrong. Yeah, and they're, and they're committed. You know, I mean, one of the big takeaways from the research that I did was that we are rationalizers um, just as often, if not more often, than reasoners, right? We think we sit down and we reason with, with, with information about the world and with carefully reasoned um, reasons uh, instead of just sort of making it up on the hoof to try to, to try to convince ourselves and not to mention other people that what we're doing is right or true or just or whatever it may be. So that's a huge problem is that we, if we rationalize instead of, instead of reason our way to political decisions, because it's ultimately indefensible. Do we put enough, uh, do we do enough homework when it comes to casting our votes? No. <laughs> no, you know, I, I, I don't know. Every so often someone will say to me, I'm going to read the platforms. Yes, but do they? And I was like, no, nah, I don't think you will. <laughs> you know? I mean, this, but people want to make, you know, people want you to think that they're going to, of course, and I don't blame them. It's like if you were to poll a population after election, you know, and ask them if they voted, turnout's 110%, right? People want to be seen like they're doing good things, but in reality, obviously, they're not. And there's lots of good reasons for that. But, you know, um, it's still the, the case, though, that just knowing a bunch of facts doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to make a good political decision. What a, a good political decision requires you to be able to think them through in context, right? So, you know, people do definitely need to learn more about these things, pay more attention, but they've got to build reasoning capacity. That's, that's the ball game. But what is a good political decision? Because in the end then, David, my vote is my vote. And yeah. uh, that's my right to cast it however I see fit. Well, I would never take away someone's right to do to vote for whomever they pleased for whatever reason right. they pleased. I, um, you know, I'm trying to make a normative argument, argument about the way the world should be that says basically, you know, it's tempting to say a good political decision is any political decision I like. Right? <laughs> but then some guy comes along and says, well, I disagree with you, and then there's nowhere to go from there. But if we agree that, okay, what about the process of political decision-making? What if we say political decisions should be rational, should be able to collect information about the world that's coherent, broadly accurate, true, that you can communicate to someone else. 
and autonomous. You should be able to come up with reasons for why you're for or against something that are, that are true expressions of what you believe rather than product of lies or self-delusion. At the very least, uh, then we can um, you know, establish a, a sort of democratic space in which we're talking to each other in sort of good faith and in true ways. Wow, you're going to have fun this fall, right? When that federal election comes around? Oh, I can't wait to take a nap in November. <laughs> when it's, all, when it's over. all over. No, you're going to be busy until then. David is going to be tonight at the Brew Hall at 97, is 97E? Is that what it is? It, on oh, 97 East 2nd Avenue. That's right. Look at me not reading it properly. In Vancouver, that is tonight to celebrate his new book, Too Dumb for Democracy. Sorry, with the question mark. Do you question want to mark. say... Too Dumb for Democracy? Too Dumb for Democracy? That's the way to say it. He's going to be there from 6 to 8 tonight. Uh, You can catch him there. The book uh, you can find, it's available everywhere now. David, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Seems that for the last few years, we've talked about this problems with ambulances and paramedics right across the province is that we don't have enough of them. Now this story is coming up again, where the union representing BC paramedics and emergency dispatchers say that staffing shortages are at crisis levels. So the province is dealing with an un unprecedented level of vacant paramedic positions. So what does that mean? How is that translating into the service that you hope that you don't ever need? Let's find out. Cameron Eby is with us now, the provincial president of the Ambulance Paramedics and Emergency Dispatchers of BC. Cameron, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. What's going on out there? What's happening? Well, we've been having reports from our paramedics and dispatchers over the last number of weeks that uh, the, the number of ambulances and dispatch positions that aren't staffed are at what we see as record levels. And that's translating, of course, into ambulances out of service and the potential for delayed responses. So is that people, like the jobs are vacant and the jobs aren't being filled? uh, Or is that just we're having a a regular shortage? It's a bit, it's a combination of a couple of things. So uh, we're advised that there are quite a few Uh, vacant full-time positions in the lower mainland and that leaves the uh, ambulance service without the depth of relief workers that they need to cover vacancies both predictable things like vacation and unpredictable things like workplace injuries and, and sickness and so when those ambulances go out of service everybody else that is still at work of course has to pick up that extra workload uh and it's it it's reaching a bit of a breaking point and that leads to more occupational stress injuries like PTSD and more people needing to be off work and then that just makes it worse. Yeah, so how is this um, manifesting itself? Like are we seeing a shortage in the number of uh, paramedics who are on shift? Yes, that's exactly it. There's a there's a, an incredible number of ambulances that are out of service because they can't be staffed and, and so we've had reports uh, last weekend, for example, for the area, the lower mainland area, which stretches from Pemberton to uh, Boston Bar Hope area, uh, of having at one point 40 ambulances out of service, uh, which represents about half the fleet on that particular night shift. So uh, removing half the ambulances from the street is, uh, has a dramatic impact, of course. Yeah, that's crazy. So what is that? So that means that people are waiting longer than when they do need an ambulance? Yeah, of course, we don't have access to uh, response data, but we presume that there's no way that you can't take away that many resources and not have it impact response times, especially for the lower acuity calls. It's going to translate into people waiting longer. And in fact, we've had reports from our call takers and dispatchers of having people phoning repeatedly, 
uh, and waiting extended periods of time and getting understandably very upset on the phone uh, for doing that. And so we think it's something that needs to be uh, addressed very quickly. Yeah, what do we need to do to, to fix this? Has this been a long-standing pro- like problem, and, and what's being done about it? Well, you, you may remember talking to us a few times about ambulance shortages, but we believe this is a little bit of a different context, whereas previously we were talking about you know, possibly not having enough ambulances to meet the call volume demand, whereas this situation seems to be more focused on the ambulances that we do have aren't staffed. And so a uh, little bit of a, of a different scenario. And so we think that the solution uh, needs to be more of a province-wide look at it. Uh, the Obviously, we need to fill those vacant positions in Vancouver, and we've got lots of paramedics uh, lining up to do that. The problem is, is that that creates a shift from our urban and our rural communities of the paramedics moving into the larger centres to get full-time employment. And that's where we're having trouble backfilling positions is right. in those medium and small communities. So, so those places, we, we can't just rob the paramedics from, from those communities, otherwise we're just shifting the problem. So we've got to create a better system with good paying jobs to attract, recruit and retain paramedics in all communities. Is it a matter of training then? Do we need to train more paramedics? Well, it, we've moved away or the ambulance service has moved away from the model of actually providing the training for paramedics, but uh, it, we need to be able to recruit paramedics. And, and like I said, I, we believe that that's through good paying jobs uh, in all levels of communities. So what does that mean that when you say recruit paramedics, so they should already be trained? That's right. The, the model now is that, uh, that somebody interested in the career goes and obtains their education from an accredited school. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are a few of them in British Columbia, but there's many more across Canada. And then uh, those graduates apply to be a paramedic with BC Ambulance. But the problem is, is that they have other opportunities, of course. So there's, there's many paramedic opportunities in industry here in British Columbia. Uh, and then there's other provinces that are, are also seeking qualified paramedics. And so we've got we've to get uh, competitive with them uh, to, to make sure that we can draw in the people coming out of school. Because right now, when you come out of school as a paramedic, the job prospects are not great. You're generally going to a small community that, that you likely don't live in uh, to work on call, and uh, you don't have any guarantee of income. And so we need to fix that in those small communities. We need to fix it in the medium communities, like where I live in the Comox Valley. Uh, we're seeing those re- uh, recruitment struggles everywhere. So that's interesting then. So what would be better then? So if, if people are looking for a job, if they've got that paramedic training, can they be hired on right away now in the bigger areas or shouldn't they start and learn somewhere else? Well, right now the model is, is that generally you're you're hired into, as I said, a smaller remote community. Right. And as you build uh, time with the ambulance service, you move into the larger centers. And so what it creates is, uh, again, I mentioned that I'm in the Comox Valley, so yeah. we're a medium-sized community. So we're going to draw our paramedics from some small stations on either on the islands or in the North Vancouver Island. And those people are going to be hired off the street there. And so those employees are generally there for a very short period of time, and they're just trying to get to the, the next station. And then uh, in a station like mine, that will be generally the last one before you move to a full-time position in the lower mainland. So it's a constant 
flow of employees and a flux, and it uh, it doesn't create stabilized staffing in, in any community, whether it's small or large. No, it doesn't sound like it. So then what's the next step here, Cameron? Like, have you, have you talked to the health minister or, or reached out? Yeah, we have. We've had discussions around this. Uh, we right now uh, we are in a, a period of collective bargaining, so we think that's an opportunity to to address some of these issues. And uh, and so far, we've made some good progress uh, at the bargaining table. So uh, we're looking forward to, as I said before, trying to bring solutions to to the entire system, not just one pocket of it. Okay, Cameron. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That is Cameron Eby, Provincial President of the Ambulance Paramedics and Emergency Dispatchers of BC. Well, here's a stat for you that I heard today, and I was really surprised by this. More than 9 million Canadians experienced tinnitus in the past year. That's according to Statistics Canada, and that is a huge number. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's when someone thinks there's a noise or they hear a ringing in their ear, but they are the only one that is actually hearing it. So why does this happen? Is there a particular age group this is happening to? We wanted to find out more about this. So joining us now is Pamela Ramaj Moran, who's a senior analyst for the Health and Analysis Division at Statistics Canada. Pamela, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Simi. These are really big numbers numbers for tinnitus. Have we seen this before? Yes, um, it's it's certainly consistent with um, earlier work that we've done. It is it is very common. I think a lot of people haven't heard of it or aren't aware of it. But yes, we're talking 37% of the, the population, the adult population, which in this study was 19 to 79 years old. Okay, so is there a particular demographic that is impacted more by this? Well, uh, one... Uh, interesting finding in our study is that younger people, so the group, the adults in the 19 to 29-year-old range were more likely to have the tinnitus, 46% of people in that age group, compared to about 33 or 35% in the older age groups. And why that was unexpected is because uh, tinnitus is associated with uh, hearing loss, which mm-hmm. occurs more at older ages, and also one's cumulative exposure to noise. It can be a result of head trauma, dental issues, medication. So you, you would expect, and as often found, it's higher at older ages because there's more years of exposure. Right, but that's still a surprising number for a young age, isn't it? Yes, and we looked into that further uh, because we were uh, surprised by that. And one of the possible explanations, and we can't say it's definitively the cause, but is exposure to noise. And we looked at a variety of things by age group, and the younger age group were more likely to use um, audio devices with headphones yeah. or earbuds, which That's is a thinking. surprise. Um, amplified music, for example, at concerts or uh, loud restaurants or bars, um, sporting or entertainment of events, and also to firearms. So younger people were more likely to be exposed than the, the older groups to loud noise from a variety of places. And we also know from earlier studies that younger people are more likely to be exposed to loud noise at, at work and less um, often are in in occupations where there's loud noise but no headphones right required. so like a noisy restaurant or right that sort of thing. so does it get like what happens then as people get older then is there a way to fix this is it or is it just something that gets worse and you have to live with it well this is one of the problems is that um for some people it, it will just resolve so if a person goes out to for example a, a loud 
sporting event, um, maybe the next morning their ears are ringing and it will resolve itself. Mm -hmm. But eventually it can become chronic and persistent and people can have it um, during all their waking hours. And it can become extremely invasive. And there isn't a, isn't a cure. Uh, if you speak with audiologists, and I worked with three from the Canadian Hearing Society, they all work with management techniques, and it might be um, cognitive behavioral therapy or, or there's certain sound therapies to help people manage it, but it can't be cured. So uh, I guess those younger numbers then, that would be even more of a concern because this is something they'll have to live with for a long time. It, it suggests that there'll be um, a, a wave that, Right now, we see 37% of the adult population with tinnitus, but maybe in 20 years' time, as, as that younger age group gets older, it, it potentially could be quite a bit higher. And, and the concern here is that for some, it doesn't um, bother people. Like we did find that 30% said it wasn't bothersome and 7% said that it did. And in this study, it was bothersome if people said it affected their mood or their concentration or their sleep. So it was interfering. And we found that the people with tinnitus, particularly if it was bothersome, they were more likely to report um, poor mental health, poor um, uh, to have a mood disorder, mm-hmm. uh, high daily stress, and poor quality sleep. It's, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. You don't know which has come first uh, because, for example, sleep can exacerbate the tinnitus and then tinnitus can interrupt the sleep. But by all indications and, and earlier work, it can have quite an impact on people's quality of life if it does become persistent and chronic. It sounds like it. I also understand that you ask people, the younger people in particular, that if they, they do listen to uh, like audio devices, like how many hours a week that they do that? Yes. We um we listened to uh, sorry we we did ask them um, how many hours and how many hours at a loud volume, and we found that younger people, on average, listened um, for longer hours and also for longer hours at a loud volume, and a loud volume um, is described as having to raise your voice to speak to somebody at arm's length. So it's it's fairly loud, um, especially when you're channeling it through headphones or earbuds. Right. Okay. So they listen to quite a few hours. And so what could people possibly do then to present this? Are we just listening to too much sound too loudly? The pro- um, one of the prevent uh, measures to help prevent tinnitus is certainly to not have um, so many listening hours and at lower volumes. There, there are other um, things associated with tinnitus that if you're prescribed a certain medication or if you happen to have head trauma, there are things that perhaps you can't easily fix, but noise is one of them. And I, the environments that we're living and working in are, are quite noisy. And then when you add to that the, uh, the noise from your listening devices during your leisure time at a loud volume, you're really adding to the problem, not just for tinnitus, but also for hearing loss. Yeah. So that's a, a warning then, I guess, for a lot of us out there, is that we should, we should be thinking about this. Yes, yes, because uh, in years to, to come, once it starts, it's, a, it's um, something that you then have to manage. At the moment, it's not something that you can cure.
Oof. Okay, Pamela, thank you so much for this. That was fascinating. Good. Thank you for having me, Simi. That was Pamela Ramesh-Moran, who's a senior analyst for the Health Analysis Division at Statistics Canada. A warning for people out there about a new phone scam that is making the rounds. Vancouver police are the ones who kind of raised the alarm about this today because, get this, some local seniors lost $3.1 million in just five cases. It's a lot of money for just five cases. And in each one of those cases, it started with the fraudster calling an elderly person on a landline and then pretending to be an employee of a jewelry store or a police officer. So let's find out how this thing worked and how you can protect yourself from this. Carla Davis is with us now, manager for the Community and Public Relations with the Better Business Bureau. Carla, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me and hello to your listeners. Have you heard about this one? Yes, I have. And what's funny about this particular scam is that it sounds very similar to the bank investigator scam that made our list of top 10 scams for 2018. In terms of the, the process, it's very similar, but in this, in the banking investigator scam, they called the victims in the middle of the night while they were sleeping and claimed to be either a bank investigator, a police officer, or um, a bank representative and claimed that there was fraudulent activity on their account and that they needed them to give them credit card information to deal with the fraudulent activity. What ended up happening is that they'd say, hey, you can hang up and call the number on the back of your card or call the police. But, of course, the same thing happened. They didn't actually hang up in some cases. And then they would put a sound on the phone that sounded similar to a dial tone and had the victim thinking that they called the bank again or that they called the police again. And then they ended up doing a one-on-one dialogue with a scammer. And Whoa. that's how they ended up losing over $2 million last year uh, across Canada. That's pretty sophisticated if they can go to those lengths and make you feel like, oh, you hung up the phone and you dialed somebody else, but it's still the same people on the phone. It's still the same people on the phone, exactly. That's really scary to think that's... It sounds like it's been ramped up, though, because this is $3.1 million in just five cases. Yes, um, and it's, it's sad that they've targeted the seniors, but it, I, I, I also understand why they've targeted the seniors because you know at at a point of you know if you're hearing on the phone as a senior you're on a fixed income or you're probably just living off of your pension and you hear that there's a a matter that requires your urgent financial attention then you're going to be you know pressured you're going to feel like you have to act right away and a lot of the times their seniors are not as aware of the different strategies that scammers use and so they're very easy prey. So then how do you protect yourself from something like this? Well, first and foremost, you know, it's it's understanding how the scammers operate. So if you're getting a call, for example, if, if you're getting a call in the middle of the night that's coming from a police officer or even someone who's claiming to be from a bank or from a jewelry store, that is a red flag automatically because that's it's typically outside of business hours. Another thing as well is that, you know, um, in terms of, how these scammers are operating, you know, they'll try to give you those fast sales tactics or, or make you feel pressured. We call them high-pressure sales tactics. Or you know, those are the things that you need to look out for as well. Anything that's requiring you to make a payment right away or, you know, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you, you should have the option to take time to make your decision. So that's another thing as well that we noticed um, would, would cause um, victims to, you know, fall, um, fall prey to a scammer. But another thing as well is when they tell you to hang up and call back, we what we encourage people to do is use a different phone because that way you, you are guaranteeing that you're not 
calling or you're not still on a contact or direct contact with the scammer. So if they've called you on the landline, which is usually the case, try calling the police or calling your bank or calling whoever you need to, you know, contact directly to verify the information with another phone, particularly a cell phone. So then is what they're, are they getting control of the person's finances and just like draining all the accounts? Is that what's happening after? Well, in some cases, what happens is that they will get the victims to transfer money to another account overseas. Or, you know, in some instances, they'll tell you to wire the money to a specific account. So that is how they're getting them to send the money away. So they'll probably, for example, with the bank investigator scam that was for the, in the top 10, they told them that they were transferring the funds for safekeeping. So ah. that is what, that's the strategy that they use, you know, and it'll, it'll catch a lot of um, seniors because you're thinking, this is my life savings. I need it to be safe. So that's what they, they that's how they've managed to, you know, make them vulnerable in that, in, in that regard. Right. It's that part. They call in the middle of the night. So you're kind of disoriented. You're tired. You're uh, and then you're sleepy and then they pile the pressure on. Exactly. Okay. So then if you don't, if you're not able to call from another phone, then uh, Carla, like what the seniors might not have, right? That extra mm-hmm. line or whatever. So then what else can they do? Well, what you need to do is ensure that the call is disconnected when you hang up. So if it, some, if for some people, you know, they'll probably press, um, just hang up and, con- and just start dialing another yeah. number without actually verifying that the other call has ended. So that's what you need to do. So if it means taking even a minute, allowing, you know, allowing the phone to sit there hung up for a minute before you take it up and dial again, that's one way you can help to ensure that the call has ended completely. Right. So don't be in a rush, essentially, like, collect your thoughts, hang up the phone, collect, collect your thoughts. Right. Wait. Because they are riding on the fact that you will be disoriented and you're acting on impulse, you're acting on fright, you're acting on, you know, you're, you're scared. And yeah. once you feel scared, a lot of the times you've told victims, if you feel scared, that is a feeling that should indicate that something is not right with this particular situation that you're in. Fear, pressure, anything like that usually tends to be associated with a scam. Is it not astounding to you, though, Carla? Because, I mean, you do this for a living, so you've heard about these, but how um, how cunning these scams are and how they continually try to evolve and outwit people. Yes, and that's the, the scary part about scams. We anticipate that there will be more, they will evolve, they will change, because scamming is a very big multi-billion dollar business, and it's a global business as well. And it's a business that has various networks and different groups and different um, parties working together across the globe. So that is what makes it scary. And that is also what makes it, you know, evolutionary as well. So what, I mean, we watch the trends every year. We see the figures getting higher and higher. And, you know, it is concerning for us because a lot of people are are hurting, not just financially, but emotionally as well. Because you're looking at losses that are affecting victims directly and affecting their families as well. So it, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a really serious concern. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. it is. Yeah, Carla. Thank you so much for your time on this. Not a problem. That is Carla Davis, manager for community and public relations with the Better Business Bureau. She was outlining the scam that was mentioned by Vancouver Police today. They're warning about this same phone scam. Uh, some local seniors. So five cases, three point one million dollars. That's a lot of money for five cases, and that's why Vancouver Police came out and said, "Watch out for this thing today."